0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And program design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast. Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode's guest is Jonas Dodu from Speedworks. Jonas developed as a coach through his passion for speed and power, and was lucky enough to be under the tutelage of master track and field coach, down for four years. Jonas has worked with many elite performers across a range of sports but his main role is within track and field. Jonas currently has an elite group of sprinters based out of the National Institute of Luckburgh, and is currently consulting a premiership and championship football and rugby clubs working with their staff and first team players. On this episode Jonas and I discuss many topics including the course of Jonas's background Jonas and I discussed his experience being mentored under Dan Fat for more than four years. I was lucky enough to get three weeks with Dan. Jonas got four years, so uh, we asked Jonas about that experience. Jonas shares with us his other personal and professional influences. What are the good and not so good things that Jonas currently sees within the physical preparation and sports medicine professions? And what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he's seen? Jonas gives us an in-depth breakdown on how he develops acceleration and maximum velocity with both track and field and team-based athletes. Here Jonas overviews his technical model, common mistakes that he sees, corrective strategies he might apply, his programming of volumes and intensities, and his thoughts on general physical preparation training in a supportive process for making athletes faster, i.e. strength and power methods. Jonas describes his assessment protocol for getting an insight into an athlete's physical capacity profile. Jonas and I discuss the difference in the technical models of pushers versus pullers and how this may impact how you coach the athletes within these very general classifications. Here I asked Jonas about his thoughts on using frontside mechanic dominant drills with backside dominant sprinters, i.e. pushers. Jonas gives us his thoughts on speed endurance development. Jonas tells us his strategy for working on an athlete's strengths and their weaknesses. Jonas gives us an insight into his programming, organization, and periodization of his training cycles with his athletes. Jonas shares with us his biggest lessons he's learned so far in his career and life. Jonas shares his top resources and advice to all of the listeners. And finally, if Jonas could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Jonas, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Jonas, it's Hi. an ab- it's an absolute pleasure to have you to come on. Uh, to have you come on the uh, All Things Strength and Wellness podcast, just for the listeners, Jonas, who might be too familiar with uh, who you are, just fill us in on the background.
1: Um, my background, I'm I'm a coach, and I've always been a coach. Um, I started playing rugby as a kid and um, was injured early and, and kind of got into sports therapy and um, and all things kind of strength and conditioning, uh, wanting to know more, ended up learning a lot more about track and field um, and athletics and sprinting and have spent near enough the past 10 years coaching athletes, um, uh, Paralympians and cerebral palsy category and sprinters and long jumpers and... Um, now I'm a, uh, still a track coach, but I spend half of my week consulting with, with team sports, primarily football and, and a bit of rugby still as well.
0: Great stuff! Great stuff. So uh, maybe d- delve a little bit deeper into how you got into track and field. So as we just said before we got online, there I know rugby was sort of initially one of your main sports. Yeah, I how, think
1: I got, I be- basically it's really it. it, it I was doing my master's thesis on, on coach expertise and um mm. and snowballed through the research and, and did like a bit of a went around the houses and spoke to as many coaches that I knew uh professionalists and see coaches within within rugby and and most of the research and most of people's, you know, um inspirations were coming from track and field periodization literature and, and track and field coaches and how they manipulate um, training variables and and and, uh, and right plans to, to essentially make people stronger, faster, more explosive. Um, and so it made me realise that actually, if I really wanted to be good at rugby periodisation and planning and really wanted to be able to essentially get people to peak each week, um, in inverted commas that is, um, the reality is that track and field coaches probably knew a lot more. Um, so... I found Dan Paff and and Derek Evely and Kevin Tyler and their website was, was awesome. Kind of went on a bit of a road trip for six months, spending time with those guys over in Canada and with Dan in, in California when he was at the USOC, Um, wrote my thesis on Dan and, and and then just kind of fell into track and realized that actually I'm I'm better off spending another Olympic cycle or two just focusing um, my energy around trying to figure out the, the track puzzle. Um, so it, it started as a, uh, I guess a a journey trying to make myself a better strength coach in the gym. Then I realized that bloody, I wasn't really going to learn enough just staying in the gym. Um, I I needed to understand a, a bit more of a bigger picture. Um, so that when I came back into the gym or back into the physical prep world in team sports that I was, you know, a bit more, more, um, uh, yeah, I just had a bit more of an understanding of, what the whole process of, of stimulation and adaptation was and how the, the organism was really going to respond and, and, and what was actually happening. Um, so track and field was an accident, essentially. Um, but um, I, I love it, and it's it's definitely changed my life and my, and my process.
0: That's what my parents tell me all the time about me, that I was an accident. <laughs> well,
1: yeah. <laughs> that too much <laughs>
0: uh that, that doesn't matter don't ever to listen to this but uh tell us about tell us a little more about that time in california with dan because i've actually heard from dan speaking about that time where he's just like he just kind of sent an email and he just showed up and then he's kind of like so where are you staying and how are you feeding yourself
1: and yeah exactly you- so i was i was um so my first year in my master's and i, I literally spent the whole summer saving up um and uh visited the guys in canada i was probably only there for about two weeks but there, there was a thought process about me doing a phd and in, in in coaching and coaching development and uh, centered around track and field but um i didn't feel um it was morally right to go and do a phd and end up being dr dodo and, and uh, uh, essentially uh, an expert in track and field if i hadn't actually coached anyone so that that was a, a good gesture and was nice and and it was a thought process but I figured I I'm better off spending that time in in the trenches coaching and making mistakes and learning from those rather than sitting down and, and kind of trying to lecture people and teach people to suck eggs when I hadn't really done it yet but then I moved on to Dan and I guess the, before I visited Dan and before I even went to Canada I, I sent emails throughout the whole summer I listened to everything I could I found everything I could um Tom Crick who was who was in uh, the UK at the moment is currently in Doha but uh, with Aspire he he helped me a lot gave me all the information he had videos audios um tapes um or downloads or whatever it is of Dan talking and lecturing and 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 I essentially fell in love. I fell in love with everything I heard from him. I, I it completely, um, Dan's a bit of a robot and completely I, I could relate to that, um, make sense of it. Um, or at least I thought I made sense of it. And, and he kind of spoke about the world and painted a picture of, um, of athletes and how they respond and their problems in a way that it really just related really well with my, my mindset and how I kind of see the world. So went back and forth in emails just kept on bugging him and said you know um is there if it was if I could get myself over there would he mind if I followed him out around a bit and he said yeah cool so I I got out there and with the money I had left I probably was able to stay in rented accommodation for I don't know a couple weeks but I still had ages left of my stay and um I kind of said Dan look um this this thing was more expensive than I thought is anywhere I could stay do you know anyone and you know some of the athletes reached out and said look you can stay in our spare room I stayed in the spare room for a few weeks I stayed on someone's floor for a few weeks and kind of just went on like that if anyone has spare space or could deal with me for a weekend or whatever it is and and uh went uh, quite a quite a long time just kind of uh, I guess being a tramp um but that that gave me access to Dan on a daily basis and I would turn out of my camera and my Dictaphone, and I would record everything, and watch everything, and write everything down, and bug him. You know, he goes for jogs on a regular basis after the track, and
0: mm, mm. Uh, he still wait, he still does it.
1: Yeah, he still does it. I think it keeps him healthy and sane more than anything. Um, and I would wait for him to finish, and then um, bug him where I can. And he, sometimes you would see at the end of his jog that he would maybe try and nip off around the corner and maybe miss me, but I would always catch him. Um, <laughs> and uh so that that was really the process and, and and i think um dan has a history of attracting people um uh almost like you know uh, bees to bees to honey like he, he has a, a history and being around him um for the four years that he was in london and even in that small time i was in in california people would come from far and wide just to hear him speak or just to get him to watch drills or you know, he his email. I, I've, I've been around him when he's opened his computer in the morning, and he's got a hundred emails, hundred fresh emails turning up, um, coming from anyone from any any sphere that you can imagine in an elite sport. Um, and uh, most of it he keeps to himself. You don't even know, like the the people that are asking him questions at, at the highest level of different different sports. Um, it's quite amazing, actually. Um, so yeah, that's 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 Dan. Like he's He's in, uh, always giving and in information and always sharing and happy to share. Um, and, um, and, and I guess as a result, it's, it's uh, spawned uh, the development and evolution of probably like dozens and dozens of the best therapists and coaches um, around the world.
0: That uh that time in California with Dan, what sort of year or time uh time period were we talking about there? And then how long was that was that time with Dan in total?
1: Um that was probably three months and that was in the end of uh oh I don't know. Look, wow I'm turning thirty two in January and so it's probably like exactly ten years ago mm. because I went
0: because um, it was before London, anyway.
1: Yeah. Well, so, oh, so it was two end of two thousand eight, two thousand eight, because it was approaching Christmas. It was the winter, um, and when I came home over the after four or five months, it was then the two thousand nine World Champs in Berlin, and then at the end of that season, he he moved to London for in in the build up to um, twenty twelve. So we're talking about two thousand eight, basically, end of two thousand eight. <laughs>
0: So before uh, before I move on to the next question, which will be about your influences, and obviously Dan is is going to be one that you'll speak about. We've already spoken about. but maybe then bring us up through London, uh, twenty twelve. Like you know how how that sort of whole time period from oh nine to twelve. What 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 was that like with Dan and I know Stu was there and Derek and kept Tyler, What was that sort of environment like? Uh, like. Just from hearing it from an external standpoint, it sounded like an absolutely amazing environment to sort of. Yeah, you know, I to.
1: mean, I think. Um, uh, so by the time Dan, you know, before even Dan got here, Kevin Tyler got a job um, as head of coaching, um, and then soon enough, Derek Evely, Dan um, were were employed and were in the in the country, um, all under. Um, Charles and comedy's reign um, as performance director. So soon enough, I had a, a job as, as one of the apprentice coaches, um, probably the best uh, scheme in coach development that, that's really happened in the UK, especially in athletics, that is. Um, and that, that put me as Dan's apprentice coach. Um, and it meant that very, very, very quickly I had to figure it out. So I had been coaching track and field maybe for, t- for a year. By that point, I had a development group Um Based in Battersea, just kids, anyone that was broken or didn't have a coach will turn up, Um, and so I continued coaching some of those. I I kind of accumulated different athletes over the over that time period, Um, and also helped Dan with anyone that he needed help with. Um, So by the time we got to 2012, I was supporting him primarily with his 400 boys, um, Rob Tobin and Reese Williams. Um, four, four and four hurdles um, and Johnny Peacock um, and uh, who else those were the main guys that would help with, Stu by the time I got to 2012 was primarily working with um, the sprinters Dwayne and Christian and Marlon um, and my miss a few there um, and then Dan focused on the on the field event as Goldie and Greg Rutherford and um, uh, that's probably it really uh, we had a poll vote as well so by, by that point um, the environment in London was very interesting so when you're in it you see it in one perspective but after those years I actually saw it from a different perspective so in you know in the in the moment it felt like Kevin had brought over some of the best coaching minds in the world including Stu and Dan and, and Derek and and they were bringing a very Americanized model, a speed year-round program, a technical focus, a trackside therapy, performance therapy model um, that we hadn't applied in the UK, at least not on a, on, not across the board. Uh, we were using a very traditional um, endurance-based model, um, high-low progression from you know volume-based um, in the winter and gradually bit by bit, adding a bit of intensity until a massive spike of intensity um, come, you know, pre-comp going into the outdoor season. Um, And our injury, our injury rates were very high and there's a lot of research and there's, you know, our medical guys have published how, how much, uh, how much we reduce injury rates uh, as an organisation and and in the sprints. Um, And, and actually, I feel like we progressed a lot um, as a, as a community, especially within the sprints, but I think across the board, and and I think as a result, the the, the legacy of um, that three or four year period is a number of young coaches who are you know under 35 who are coaching world class athletes in, in Britain at the moment, um, especially again in the sprints. Um, so there was a massive, there, there has been a massive shift for the better, but at the same time, and not many people will say this to you, I think we didn't give enough ratings and enough um, respect to a number of the coaches that had done it a different way in Britain. Um, and maybe that's because some of the way they done it wasn't in a way they could communicate across in, in an academic way, um, in a clearly evidence-based way. Um, but actually, what they had developed was a real important art of coaching, um, a real important, more, it's probably more uh, less about their programming and more about their ability to get people who are in 10-2 shape to believe they were in 10-0 shape on race day. Um, their ability to manage the athlete's mindset and give them, give them a boost, give them the fire they need in the cool room at the major games to get them to overperform. Um, were there high levels of injury rate throughout the season? Yes. Was there a high dropout in, and, and maybe a waste of some talent, perhaps? Um, all these other things that make it very justified as to why Kevin and Charles made the changes and brought in um, the expertise that they did. But as a young coach, for me, I then as a result, didn't look at those guys as mentors. I looked at Dan, Stu, I looked at all these guys purely, and they were the people that I only learned from for a three or four year period. Um, and then I started to realise, oh, there is more to it. And it's not that that Dan on race day or in the call room isn't a genius. He, like His emotional intelligence is great. Like you, you see him around, you see him put on different hats, either bring more energy to it or calm people down like those important things but i think my point is um we had some gems in the uk that we didn't actually um or i didn't have as much access to um, nor was i pushed to learn from because they weren't doing it the way that that we would we were being taught through the british athletic system at
0: that time Was there? was there much of a conflict there because i've heard dan speak about that i actually have access to the u coach library uh so i've watched a lot of the lectures and you know and since like the time in england like just from hearing the reflections of dan and Stu, like they never really got much into it because we never sat down and had a formal conversation but it just it, the way they would say it and passing in presentations you always got the feeling that they had a lot of um a lot of uphill battles while they're in the U.K. Yeah, I
1: think any culture change, any culture shift in any organisation, um, in any industry is never smooth. Or mm. well, they talk about, norming, storming, or, or is it storming, norming, performing, or something like that, um, which is essentially, you know, essentially whenever you get a group of new people together, um, it, it always takes a bit of time for people to know their place, for people to challenge each other, for people to start to understand each other, and then you start to work um, in in some level of heart in some level of harmony. Um, so, yeah, I don't think anyone will say it was smooth, and there were there were casualties of war, uh, and some people retired out of the sport or moved on to to other things. Um, but I think by the end of it. You, you, it created a massive culture shift in, in British athletics as an organization um and as well as uh within the coaching community as a whole.
0: Was Jerry Ramajita there for the whole time as yeah.
1: well with him? Jerry was dance main therapist, Andy Burke mm. was Dan's main therapist. Um they were in the building as well. Yeah. Um and um yeah, there was loads going on. Dr. Noel and Wendy and we had a few other physios come and go. Um there was a lot going on and, and, and it was fun. And for me, it was the most fun because I was employed to learn. I, w- I wasn't on a performance contract. Mm. I was there to learn. The, the fact that I happened to be able to coach um, some guys who went to the Olympics at that time and some Paralympians and some junior athletes that went and were successful was just um, a bonus, was cherry on the, on the cake. But I was there to learn. so I could almost stand back and, and watch the battles and watch how they were resolved and, and watch the fruits of those battles. Mm. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I learned that conflicts can be fruitful. Um, and and uh, So it, it was a very interesting environment and, um, and, and actually we missed those days.
0: So, I mean, the next question is probably a bit redundant, but it's one I always ask. And obviously you've alluded to Dan and, and the guys you spoke about there, Sue, Kev, Derek and whatnot um but outside of those guys, and obviously like I mean it's hard to look beyond such so such great guys. who else would you say have been the biggest influences on you but not only professionally Jonas, but also even personally if if I was asking ask you that
1: I think the rest of the coaches in the building the, the, or in the country the make the main like more senior coaches that I learned from one being Mike Raffalaka who mm. who coached um Jeanette Quachi and um adam Jamili and ashley nelson and ricky 15 so he's, he's got a good coaching pedigree he's a track geek like he is a historian he's learned from everybody he i think he's his actual industry like where he come from is actually computer programming and and that's kind of how his mind works as well he's a storer of information he's a hoarder of information um and he he knows everyone in track and 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 believes he actually knows what everyone is doing in track so he's as a young coach he was excellent to to have around because I would have Dan who would give me a blueprint and and clarity around decision making and and Dan's program and and model and philosophy is very much an eclectic collection of different ways of training um that allows you to then apply it um to make shifts in, in units of training in density and in volumes to, uh, you know, to be applicable to that scenario, uh, either that person or that time of the year or that sport. Um, So Dan, Dan taught me my blueprint of how I see training, um, organized training in my head. Um, And, and maybe Michael taught me more about the ins and outs of athletics, um, the social dynamics of athletics, um, the, the history of things that have come before and not worked and, and, and had, had his own spirit as well. Um, Lloyd Cowan, who coached Christine Harugu, um, is probably someone that over the past ten years we've had ups and downs with. Uh, uh, in me, me personally as a as a coach, but actually over the past three or four years has been quite supportive. And and uh, and it's not that we spend much time even on the phone or um, or even much time coaching side by side, apart from at major games. Um, but when we do have conversations, they are quite powerful. Um, and um, he's, his ability on, on, I, I say it to everyone. I say it all the time that Lloyd in a call room can like a, my, my example of 10, to go to go to ten o. that's Lloyd. He just has this way, you know, he's six foot five. He's a big man. He's loud when he wants to be. Um, and he whispers when he needs to be. And it, it that, that, I've I've seen him and watched him, and most of my athletes have been influenced by him at a games or at a comp or even just in training sometimes. And he does have a knack about him, and and um, he spent a lot of time with Bolt in that camp, in that camp in Jamaica. And yeah, he's yeah he's a, he's a good guy. Um, I like him a lot. My wife likes him a lot as well. So those two would be senior coaches that um, other senior coaches in the building or in in London in the Valley in athletics that would have influenced me quite a lot. Um, I don't know my wife my wife was an Olympian she was a coach she was an apprentice as well at the same time under Dan um, so we we learnt together at one point maybe for a few years um, she's she's seen the sport she's seen all the fads she's seen she's got a great coaching eye like when I first started coaching I would watch everything in slow-mo I record all my runs and I'll go home watching slow-mo and I'll show it to her and i like, ask her what she thinks and she'll be like I don't know. I can't see anything. I can't watch it in slow-mo. I'm like, what What do you mean? Because I can't see, I can't see the shapes. I can't see the timing. It's it's, it's in slow motion. And that was completely opposite to how I looked at the world.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, so she forced me to watch video in normal time and start to see, um, I I guess the timings and the rhythm. And and actually now I hate watching video in slow-mo. I mean, I might record in slow-mo because on my iPhone, I can turn it back to normal speed. Athletes sometimes like to see slow-mo um, coaches, junior coaches like to see things in slow-mo, but I definitely have learned to go, okay, well, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I no longer like watching video in slow-mo. She's, she's kind of influenced me in that way. She's influenced me to recognize that, um, a very intense speed based model is important, but for that, you, you get loads of easy wins. There's loads of low hanging fruit, um, Through doing developmental work, um, through doing tempo work, through doing circuits, through doing basic stuff. And if you understand why you're doing it and how you progress and how that can complement and be compatible with your speed-based program um, or your high-intensity focused training model, um, actually, it's how you deal with young developmental athletes who just don't have the chassis to, to do the speed work all the time. Um, that's how you deal with actually some elastic engines, elastic animals who actually also have a bit of an aerobic engine, who are who are quite um, efficient with their energy systems and, and require both to be as fast as possible. Um, and how then you also apply the uh, rotational thought process in in everything you do, you know, with with the hips and the decks, you know, they they need to be able to run fast, be fit and also be able to throw and jump, of course. Um, so their, their week cycle, how they use general strength to address, um, technical, um, things, especially with, um, disassociation of shoulder rotation and hips and the timing of how to use your, your, um, your rotational slings, um, the how you can choose specific exercises to address um, rotational issues at thoracic spine, at the shoulder, at the lumbar and hip. Um, uh, I, I think the basic multi-events model, um, if you look at look at it from a sports medicine mind, let's say, um, actually has loads of gems for maximizing health and, and efficiency of, of human movement so again she opened my my eyes to that may help me make sense again even more sense of dan's model um and just helped me to have a life i guess and, and learn how to switch off
0: i'm still in the slow-mo model <laughs> when, I, when i when i was at altus i was recording on my cam and playing it back slow-mo still used to give me a bit of stick for it so, because if I wasn't recording too much, you go no camera today, and I was like, no, I have enough videos to watch.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I I think um, it's important to be able to do both. Yeah, yeah. Know, know the angles, know the, the the specific positions, and 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 the rate of change, in in you know an accelerations transition, um, make sense of the timings, um, but you've also got to be able to almost see in blur. So it's like one one view is really focused, looking at pinpoint uh, aspects on the body, and a different view is a bit more of a peripheral view, where you're not really looking at anything in specific. Like you're mm. you're kind of just seeing the whole body in motion, yeah. Almost allowing your subconscious to connect the dots for you, um, listening to the movement, um, feeling the movement, um, rather than um, making it so cognitive and so. Um, focused on specific angles, specific joints, and, and how they're moving in time.
0: So, before we get into the main sort of topic, which is speed, or as Mickey from Rocky says, speed, greasy, fast speed, <laughs> I'm going to ask one more uh, question and ask all the guests. Um, that is, in, in terms of the good and also the not so good things that you currently see within the whole sports preparation profession what are the good and not so good things that you see and with regards to the not so good what solutions would you offer
1: oh before we get into the main bit of the of the podcast it's been half an hour firstly but um i uh don't,
0: don't worry man we can always do part two three four five no, no I, don't, I don't mind
1: um I'm i'm just thinking about your listeners um the good and not so good in sport performance. Um, that's you might have to be a bit more specific for me. Well, if
0: so now not performance. Our, our, our profession as a whole, like as in our our profession as in co- like the whole coaching, sports medicine, not so much sports performance. So I mean, you know, typical answers people would give will be like technology. It's good and bad, or. Social media, that you know, there's some good things but then There's other coaches tearing the coaches down. And, you know, that would be kind of what a lot of people will go at with this angle. But it would be interesting to hear your thoughts of what you think are the good and not so good. Yeah,
1: um, if people have said those ones already, then maybe I'll ignore those. But um, I, I think maybe it's kind of how you, con- you, you even conceive this question. Like, I think the sports medicine and the sports performance and the sports coaching world... Um, benefit more from all creating the same language Mm. and the best environments, the best teams the best um, or or at least my perception of the best um, seem to break down the barriers of seeing an injury as a sports medicine issue or a performance uh, limitation as a coaching issue Um, Instead, they see the human as a human and the player as a player, athlete as an athlete um, and recognize that there are perhaps multiple ways of addressing the same issue. Um, and there could be a big, you know, you've got hamstring injury. You could have a massive focus on eccentric loading, and, and, and maybe on, on sports therapy, performance therapy around biomechanics and, and, and making sure the the thoracic spine down to the hip, to the, the femur and, and the fib and the ankle are all speaking in a way or all aligned in a way that you have minimal stress and, and maximal output from, let's say, the biceps femoris. Um you could maybe you look down a you look for a lens of quad to hamstring ratios being your important one, or maybe you look down the lens of it being more important to do high speed running and and have a balance in your program. Um, I think the reality is there is usually a a way of complementing um, your program by looking at it from multiple lenses and and seeing the world from a there are from from Seeing the world from the athlete's perspective of what their day to day really is, and an athlete, a full time athlete or full time player, has uh, it, it, his his output is influenced by what your manager or your coach decides to do on a daily basis in training, what the SNC coach wants to do, what the therapist thinks is important, what their lifestyle is like, what their nutrition and their ability to recover is like. There are so many prongs that that go into performance and health that we can't say they stayed healthy because their normal scores were were over 400. We can't say that. We can't say they stayed healthy because of tactical periodization and how specific it is to, to, their, to their needs. We, we have to take a step back and go. All of these things contribute and which one is weighted a bit higher for this individual? So I think sometimes that's the problem is that online people are debating in their silos and aren't really looking big picture um and sometimes that like as a young coach you read you read something or you listen to something you say okay that's the way forwards I know I'm going to make someone run sub 10 if they do these things in the gym or if my program is focused on this and I'm not doing junk work and I'm not doing this when actually it's it's a combination of, of, of all areas and there aren't many people um giving you insight into how they combine all of those areas
0: so moving on then to the sport that i suppose most people would have tuned in to, to this podcast to listen to one day when they see that your name was on the was on the next the next person uh, to be on the episode which is going to be speed so uh, i know we said uh, online or sorry offline beforehand that i kind of wanted you to really get into speed in sort of all of its, um, all of its sort of domains and turns, maybe of the technical aspects and the programming aspects, and maybe we'll will will attack that through looking at track first, and then how can we adapt these particular um, domains of enhancing speed development track to field-based athletes? Because you obviously have a big background in field-based athletes in terms of rugby and football. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be like I'm not going to say too much now over the next however long. Uh, you can just keep going on about this but i suppose what, what i'd like to kind of maybe propose is you know maybe look at your acceleration model and then your your maximum velocity model and maybe speed endurance and maybe speak us through like you know maybe some technical things and then programming things around that and then even with the programming like how does that look on a micro setup i know it could be similar to dan's but there would be a lot of listeners here who wouldn't be familiar with they might be familiar with dan but they probably wouldn't be familiar with his programming like myself yourself and you you more so because you've been, obviously, around Dan for a decade. I've only been really around Dan for the last year, year or two. Like, I've been aware of his work for five years, but in actually being in communication with him, um, it's only been a couple of years. But, uh, so, like, you can go as deep as you want down this hole. And if I have any specific questions, I'll, I'll you know, add them on or interject as we go on. Then maybe shift that into, like, how you might say, okay, this is what we do on the track. But when it comes to field, this is where you might need to adapt a little bit. So, the floor is all yours, my man.
1: Okay. Um I'll go bit by bit and, and maybe you'll have to stop and start me and, and, and keep directing me in the direction we should go. Um acceleration. I think acceleration feeds your top speed and your max velocity and vice versa. Uh so clearly Things like peak power and strength to ratio allow you, um, or correlate well with ability to accelerate over five to ten meters. Um, there's a lot of research out on that, and uh, and you just you see it across the board, and and you can easily just do a. If you've got a team of twenty players, you can easily do a review of that, and you can see it. If you're using force plates, or you're using a standing long jump, or a vertical vertical jump test, typically your guys who do well in those things can accelerate pretty well. Um, but that's just the first task. That's just the first, quite quite a concentric based task of accelerating. Um, then transitioning into into higher hips, into faster ground contacts. Requires far more of an elastic quality, um, far more of a bouncy action. Um, and then you see things moving from, uh, moving from your counter-movement jump and your standing long jump, things that are more like bounds and drop jumps from various heights um, being the contributing or that the, the, the correlating quality for the people's ability to run fast in an upright posture. Um and so that's all what, what I'm always doing. I'm always trying to say, okay, well what what is the task and and what relates well to it down the spectrum. I, I kind of spend a lot of my time looking at Bondichot's classification quite loosely, um, but looking at if if speed and acceleration and max V is at the top of this and, and or it's close to the top if I'm in a team sport, then I'm kind of looking down and saying, Well, what else correlates contributes to this quality? So in my mind um, that's kind of how I look at it. Contractile, um, peak power, counter movement type um, jumps, one action, slow SSC type movements are all about, um, are, are all contribute to acceleration and the ability to get yourself going. Whereas more elastic actions um, are about upright running and, and more uh, fast SSC. Type movements, more reactive type movements. Um, acceleration is rhythmical; it's a, a gradual change of body body uh, centre of mass. It's a gradual increase in stride length. But essentially, I always talk about any any movement, and um, I, I normally start with projection, um, reactivity, and the ability to switch your limbs. Um, and and I think. Again, a lot of J.B. Moran's research is is clearly talked about. And and not not just J.B., a lot of people have have identified the reality that your hip-based muscles um, are the engine. Um, Your ankle and knee generally are uh, recycling uh, energy through the ground. And your efficiency of switching your limbs is how you can continue doing that process again and again, step after step from acceleration into your upright running. Um, that's as, as how as simple as how I look at it. That's, it's that simple. If you know how to project your body, if you can switch your limbs effectively and create a stiff ankle on the ground, that is the ABCs in my mind of most movements in a linear and change of direction, even in kicking a ball, your ability to, to do those things. Um, are the are the fundamentals? Um, that's acceleration and transition for me. Of course, you can you can go and look at look at it in, in a number of different ways. If you've got up to Jump and you've got egg, um and you can get a detailed analysis of uh, you know a kinematic analysis of your running, um, you will see some simple things. You know, stride length growing step for step. Um, and then the, the amount of growth reducing gradually as you get into your max velocity, um, ground contact time dropping step for step, uh, and the best sprinters being able to get themselves um under a tenth of a second on the ground. Um and uh stride length, ground contact time, but stride frequency being something that's quite idiosyncratic for certain individuals.
0: Mm. Um
1: a lot of a lot of the a lot of the event group I reckon find a, a high stride frequency within three or four steps, and with some fluctuations throughout the run, near enough hold that stride frequency for the rest of the run. Um,
0: how how much of a, an importance do you put on blocks and block setup, and and also just the first two steps um, from post block clearance? And the reason I ask that's only because. I'm in the middle of writing an essay on dynamic correspondence and the power clean with the sprint start, and, and the sprint start is essentially encompassing just block clearance in the first two steps, and a lot of the literature about it rounded, you know, there's a lot of people saying that because the block clearance in the first two steps are so kinematically and kinetically different to, like, the rest of the 100-meter sprint that some coaches treat it as a completely different animal in terms of just that specific area. Do, do you treat that in a particular, particular special way or do you look at that in a particular way?
1: Um, yeah, I guess you do and you don't. So yes, it's different because it's probably the only time when you are throwing yourself so horizontal or mm. as horizontal as possible. Yeah. Um, uh, and so your ability to maintain torso posture, um, uh, is, is challenged probably the most in those first two steps Um, the first step or even just in your set position requires so much isometric force and tension you have to create so much of a spring in that position that you don't don't have to do it again after that first step Um, and the more horizontal you can put yourself the more effective and efficient you have to be in switching your limbs to put your step back down under you and you have to have enough rate of force development that you can actually project yourself again and apply it again, step zero, one, two, and three. Yeah. So it becomes a very challenging um, thing to do. And, and actually, as a result, um, people would rather, especially if you haven't got um, that ability to produce uh, enough horizontal force, would rather stand up out of that position because it helps, because they have, they can't, but really because they can't switch their limbs effectively enough and when they put that foot down can't develop force quick enough to to live in that position Mm, mm. but at the same time if the the way you manipulate your first two steps is dramatically different to the rest of your run you um you're making life hard for yourself
0: yeah you want to see a sort of gradual sort of rise and sort of that Initial two steps just feed into the rest of the acceleration. Yeah, the you don't want to have
1: to change your thought process in movement. You you kind of want the same the same aggressive action of switching your limbs and extending and projecting yourself. You, you, you want it to be very, very similar in steps one and two to steps 20. Yeah. yeah. So that you just have to think and process one movement pattern.
0: In terms then of... Auxiliary and supplementary training to support acceleration developments. You know, obviously we're getting into things like you know uh, resistance training methods. You know, obviously getting from our Olympic liferations to strength training um, means and methods. What what sort of what sort of means and methods do you look at to enhance that? Is it just your classical sort of you know Olympic liferations, strength training, or have, has your top process changed at all since sort of maybe you got into track and field first?
1: No I I I think people people make too much of a fuss around preparation methods like I'm Yeah
0: yeah I'm
1: I'm very I'm very classical in saying like I said st- strength to weight ratio and peak power is your biggest limiting factor in your ability to accelerate mm-hmm. so get bloody strong um, and uh you know olympic lifts are great but there is a um, technical requirement for it. So sometimes you might go a year or two just layering down the technical model to be able to load it in an effective way. Yeah. So if you're spending a lot of time teaching it, which is fine, you better be doing another exercise that you can load the hell out of. Yeah. Um, if you've got guys with lower back issues or have got, you know, for whatever reason they, they can't load a very heavy squat, maybe due to injury history, And you better find another exercise you can. Um, At the end of the day, you need to be really, really strong. At the same time, you need to be able to be really, really powerful and reactive and elastic. So finding a balance between developing maximal strength through compound lifts. um, And then maybe you've got a way of diagnosing the fact that um, if if you just look at the stretch shortening cycle, as a load and explode maybe you've got a way of diagnosing the fact that your individual is actually proficient at one side of that coin but not at the other yeah so then you say yeah by all means squat and by all means do olympic lifts but maybe you can find ways to accentuate your eccentric work or maybe you can find ways to accentuate your concentric work um if that individual needs that for that cycle so I, I definitely believe in lifting, lifting consistently, loading eccentrically, isometrically, long lever, short lever, loading the spine. We do upper body work, not a lot. Um, loading the trunk, um, compound movements. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, from the school of Kevin, Kelvin Giles. You know, do, do all the important movements that you need just to get the body healthy um, and, and help it perform. Um, but then once you've got a general training base and you've got some a, a decent work capacity, be specific. Like, figure out what's your limiting factor. By all means, you could spend 12 weeks squatting and lifting and doing everything, but you know, what, what variation is going to feed the technical problems you've got outside? So, I, th- I do think it comes down from the top of the pyramid. By all means, have work capacity, but as a strength coach and so I I always believe as a track coach you need to be in the gym or at least need need to know what's going on in the gym and direct that side of the program because that helps feed um, the issues you're having on the track you know if you've got an issue left or right then you know just doing double leg um, squats and doing double leg exercises may not over exaggerate the limb that's got the asymmetry on. Because even if you did single leg activities, if you do the same volume and the same amount on both legs, the, the, the asymmetry gap will still be there. They'll just both move up, you know. Both legs will get stronger, but the gap will still be there. Maybe you need to address it in an unbalanced or imbalanced way. Um, so, yeah, by all means, I'm very traditional in the fact that I want to lift. Um, maybe my cycles are maybe less traditional. Um because I'm probably jumping and doing pliers and doing explosive stuff from early doors. Um, and, um, my guys now have a decent work capacity to be able to lift very, very heavy consistently throughout the week. In fact, if they don't lift, they're going to complain. Um, if they're not loading their hammies eccentrically and isometrically two to three times in a week, they're, they're going to complain. Cause at some point they've had a hammy ding and, um, they they know what it feels like to have pre tension and take slack out of their legs, and they also know what it feels like to have too much slack in their legs and, and not be able to hit the ground hard or, or safely.
0: Is there any particular um, assessment di- diagnostics that you like to consistently look at to give you an idea of where you know certain physical capacities are with 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 um, with, with some of your athletes? So like do you have any sort of metrics that you like to to match up to to certain speed development parameters so like you know suppose when you're looking at if someone is having an issue in acceleration sort of that discussion of differentiating is it a skill issue or is it a capacity issue like does the person have the capacity to get into the 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 technical position that i'm asking them to get into and if they do have the skill well then maybe it is technical we keep at that or maybe it's just that they can't hit those angles that that they're that they're that they're that that they think that they need to hit because sometimes coaches are, you know i suppose the classic thing in acceleration is for years people say "Oh, you got to be lower got to be lower but if you tell someone who's weak to do that it's just a disaster you're actually just you're better off just letting them project out at the angle that they can that they can at least produce sufficient force at and then as they get more mature stronger time maybe those angles will come in time but is there any particular sort of um, yeah preparatory exercises that you sort of look at in terms of overall acceleration development?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I just come back to counter movement jumps, and if you've got force plates, you know, we use force decks, and, and in Loughborough we've got we've got nice. Michael Johnson, and he's just got his own his own system. But I think essentially you can see on a counter movement, you can see in a drop jump, um, drop jump at various from various depths, people's ability to create force, to accept and tolerate high amounts of eccentric and then utilise that force. Um, you, you, you can see that just, uh, again, quite easily um, through, through jumps. Jumps are really my main thing. And even without a force plate, you bloody just get someone to do a bloody jump onto a box or yeah, to jump over yeah. hurdles. You you can see people who can project themselves well vertically, but as soon as you add a horizontal component to it, they can't manage their trunk um, or they can't recycle their limbs well enough to be able to do repetitive plyometrics in a horizontal manner. Um, I think you see it across the range of different um, uh Different quality plyometrics. So let's call call it slow SSC and fast SSC. You can kind of see already what someone's going to be like in acceleration once you watch them do a range of drills and, and, and plyos. Um, is there a specific strength quality? Am I waiting for two and a half times body weight in the squat and one and a half times body weight in the clean before I expect someone to do something on the track? No, because of the skill required and the time required in the gym to do it most of my assessments going to happen on the track yeah it's going to happen watching movement and experimenting with movement and slowing down movement res- res- resistive sprints and seeing if they actually have the ability to project themselves even, like once it slows down yeah. it's um it's it's going to be speeding up movements making it easier to get into max velocity through just being a, doing a dribble and seeing how they tolerate having less and less time um, on the ground, but still having to project themselves and, and recycle their limbs, so I think most of it happens in movement um, yeah. and in experimentation and you 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 know after you've done similar activities again and again for years, you kind of start to realize okay well i'm not going to expect this person to jump out horizontally out of the blocks um, when they can't do a standing long jump and manage their their torso um, i'm I'm not going to expect someone to be able to run efficiently in upright sprinting if they can't, I don't know, do a scissor bleed effectively. Um, In
0: in terms of volumes then, and obviously it's very individual, but suppose maybe you can give us a bandwidth or a bracket when it comes to acceleration development, what sort of volumes would you typically be hitting and uh, how would that vary then, say, from a track athlete to maybe a a field-based athlete?
1: Volumes of acceleration development, um, I think the normal stuff applies, like two to 300 meters of, of Excel work is probably enough for most people. Yeah. If you're on the hills doing it, you probably can hike up that volume. Um, if you're pulling a pulley, um, and you're doing a range of acceleration themed work, be it slower pulley walks or bounds, um, then maybe that volume might hike up. But as soon as it becomes quite free running, then the volume decreases because intensity goes up.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, what can you do with the team sports? I guess it depends on your goal. Because once you become, once you're now doing it with your, um, let's say, a football player, your it depends what your end goal is. Because acceleration and upright sprinting for team sports, it, it depends where your mind's coming from. It might be that you're doing it as a pure physical um, stimulus.
0: Yeah.
1: So you're not really. Your goal isn't necessarily, your first goal isn't necessarily transfer to their competition event, be it rugby or football. Um, it's to give the hips and stabilisers and posterior chain and nervous system a stimulus, um, to uh, just like you would in a gym. So when you're looking at it that way, they can normally tolerate similar volumes to the track guys, you know, after all humans are humans. Um, but you might not have the same time to do the preparation work in the warm-up. You may not have the same time to go through your drills um, and develop expertise around it on that session because my guys on the track might warm up for an hour and a 15, whereas I'm rarely getting much longer than 45 minutes with a team sport player to do the whole session. Yeah. So, yeah. so as a result, you don't necessarily open them up as much and as often in, in that session. Um whereas if your goal is transfer to the event, well the volume you're doing, um at least of pure linear work, um, is probably chopped into a quarter of what you would normally do. You may be doing some preparatory resisted accelerations, um, some max V hurdles or dribble bleeds or whatever it is to get the stimulus. Um and just remind them of the, the motor patterning and awaken the nervous system. And then you may be going into... Uh, you know what? The volume might still be similar to what you would have done, but you've topped it up with some lower speed running anyway because you're doing change of direction games. You're doing agility-based games. You're, you're doing transition movements um, and, and teaching things that aren't so much pure acceleration and speed. Um, it might be more speed of thought. It might be more speed of rotation and ability to stop-start, speed of deceleration. Um, so it, the the lesson plan changes depending on the on the end point and, and what you want the adaptation to be.
0: So moving a little more into maximum velocity, then what are you know what are the certain landmarks that you like to see there from a technical standpoint, and then I suppose maybe getting into the actual training guidelines around that again in terms of volumes and maybe frequencies and time per week and then another question i'd like you to get into is how important do you feel max velocity is for field-based sports because it seems to be in, particularly in the last year 18 months particularly with the work of like you know um you know like sort of ken clark's type work and there's other work coming out in terms of talking about you know we need to start looking at maximum velocity, like we do, like a one RM or a max heart rate, and that if we can raise that, that that maximum output, will then sub maximum outputs will will become less stressful to the body, and maybe we can see a lesser incidence too, then of like hamstring issues, and it's kind of this idea yeah. too. It's kind of this idea too that field based athletes do do need some exposure to these top end speeds because they actually hit their top end speeds a lot more frequently and get up into to upright max speed run mechanics um quite regularly throughout their sport. I think the a sort of common mistake was that people were applying the pure like one hundred meter track model to field-based athletes and they were saying, Oh, field-based athletes never get out of acceleration mechanics. It's like mm, that's not completely true because they're already standing upright. So by the time they're like they hit like stride six or six, seven or even four or five, they're they're actually almost getting very close within their peak maximum velocity like so if you look like at the forty at the forty yard dash in the combine like a lot of them guys are hitting max velocity like by the time they get to twenty yards or so whereas of course a work class sprinter could keep accelerating for 50, 60 meters depending on if it's a elite female or male sprinter talking about. So maybe just touch on max velocity for, for the track athlete and then you know your thoughts on training max velocity from the field base athlete. Okay. Um, max velocity
1: what am I looking for? I'm looking for bouncy. So bouncy is a word that actually, you know, the guys that work with me a lot, it, it's it's an important part of the vocabulary. They they feel it. They know they know what it sounds like. Um, being bouncy essentially is being efficient in elastic on the ground. Um, it, it requires that you are ready for the ground. You have a stiff ankle. Tension coming from your rocket and from your hamstring. Um... And that you switch your limbs effectively so that the the recovery of one limb um, contributes to the recovery of the other, so Franz Bosch talks a lot about cross extension reflex and um, that that to me makes a lot of sense and you see it in a lot of good athletes recovering the limb um, that 's just done the toe off so the, the limb that 's behind you just finished pushing effectively um, uh, can really contribute to the the strike of the next limb and vice versa attacking the ground effectively can contribute to um, a cleaner, like a smoother recovery of the the recovering leg. Um, so what am I looking for? I'm looking for bouncy. I'm looking for um, just good postures, neutral hip. All, you know all the normal stuff that everyone should be talking about and they have been talking about for a while. Um, as to volumes and frequency and stuff like that if if i ran a simple um model where i was um doing some kind of acceleration twice a week and doing some kind of running conditioning twice a week um let's say in my gpp going into my spp i would still on my running conditioning days um incorporate max velocity training technical modeling um teaching um in the morning and the beginning of that running conditioning session and that's essentially because it then sets up the running conditioning to be technical endurance not just dead running
0: so what uh, what what exactly would you be doing there like things like mini hurdle runs or
1: i might run over hurdles i'm, I'm i might just be doing a skip b skip dribbles um strides um i might just be uh, you know i'll probably start that session with some fast ssc plyos um You know, if it's early in training, maybe it's barefoot on a mat or barefoot on grass. Um, It's low amplitude, low ground contact, you know, uh, stiffness type activities. Um, I I will be applying whatever medicine I think is necessary to get that athlete to make sense of um, max velocity, upright, efficient upright running. Um, I I could do anything on that day that makes me feel like, and it's going to make them feel like, the running session is going to be more efficient. It's going to be more balanced. It's going to be more, um, more bouncy. Yeah. So I, I think in terms of the early stage of training, um, or maybe I backstep a bit. My my model of progression for running conditioning is quite similar to uh, to a lot of people, where we go from high to, from high volumes to low volumes. The difference is I probably don't start at a high volume. Is probably just a medium to moderate, um, and I I definitely would focus more on teaching movement um, and 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 contributing to that efficiency of movement with activities prior to it to support whatever weak link it, there is, um, either structurally or um, neuromuscularly, uh, you know, body control wise. So I think very early on we. We work on max velocity mechanics, but at lower intensities um, and we feed that into our running conditioning. So by the time we actually want to do true speed work, well, we've we've probably layered down some really nice movement patterns. The athletes have learned how to do um, those movement patterns under fatigue. Um, They've created uh, capacity and tolerance of the muscles they want to use and the systems and stability. Um, timings they want to use at max three, but they've developed it again during their conditioning. So uh, you know, I talk a lot about technical endurance rather than ju- than just endurance work. Um,
0: In terms of volume there, what 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 are we talking? And again, I suppose you know, you need to give a, a bracket because it's obviously going to be different for each individual.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's like it, it depends. So if if it's a pure um, running conditioning day, I mean, what is what is normal running conditioning? Typical people are doing. 2,000 well 1,600 meters to 2,000 meters of grass runs let's just say so if that's what people are t- typically doing for 100 meter sprinter maybe very early on I might only do 1,200 meters of it because and that's that's the actual session and that's probably because I've already done I don't know 400 meters of form drills form running uh, maybe running over hurdles, maybe just doing simple dribble bleeds and scissor bleeds. Um, I've I've broken up that typical volume and done um, something that's more about motor patterning than just purely about building the volume. Um, and then I've transferred that to the point where they can now do 1,800 meters because they've probably been doing it for four to six weeks of their grass running, their tempo, their intensive tempo, let's call it. Um but it's all been built on good technique, and gradually as that falls away, then speed becomes speed, you know they you know at some point I've probably done some repeat speed endurance in the build up to that um, or maybe it's really mid zone it might fall right in between the two um and uh and what volume would that be? I don't know uh, three sets of three that might be a thousand or a thousand one thousand two hundred meters of mid zone running, you know, 80%, 85% intensity running still has a, an energy, energy system goal um, and framework in terms of work to rest ratios, but is is done with the athletes thinking um, and applying their technical model of acceleration transition into upright running um, down to the fact that by the time you're doing out and out speed, well, who cares about the volume by that point? Like, you come into a session, you set up your session, and if you run really fast, the session probably stops anyway. Um, so by that point, the athletes are maybe doing a few acceleration runs to 30 and 40 metres and then finishing off of a few 60s. There might be two or three runs. it might be four or five runs, depending on how fast it is and, and, and how they've
0: set it up. Um, do you like to time those or like do you like to have some like a, a free lap system or do, do you have some sort of objective up, way of?
1: jump and we have we so at loughborough with with the athletes now uh, where i'm based we we have um we have a biomech who who has 70 meters of up to jump in holy
0: mm. shit 70 meters that's
1: so that's so expensive yeah yeah it's british athletics um and and the lab head gun gone but you know i have free lap and i've used that for years um or or you know hand time if i need to um it all depends like these days, we don't time a lot of things unless we really want to. Yeah. Uh, we go off the movement. Um, I, I do, But saying that, I'm going to want to run for Laveg and opt to jump get, as we get closer to the season, maybe weekly or biweekly. Um, one, at least once. And Sorry, maybe once a week or once every two weeks. Um,
0: so just moving on, Jonas, how important do you feel it is now for the field-based athlete to work on max velocity in terms of obviously both technical... And then, obviously, developing that motor potential.
1: Yeah, I think again. Um, so you mentioned something that basically brings that whole speed reserve argument into play. Um, if you're if you're fast, if the game of whatever you're playing and the context of the game, the space and the amount of space you get and and distance you get to run in a straight line is limited so that your actual max speed in the game is limited, let's say that your average speed in the game is limited to 7.5 metres per second on average, Um, with bursts that maybe go up to 8.5 metres per second and and once every other game maybe you reach beyond 9 metres per second, if your top speed was 10.5 metres per second, that game is only going to be... Access, It's only going to be challenging at, the same, at a certain level If your top speed is 9 metres per second Then clearly A lot more of the game is closer to your max Than it should be mm-hmm. And that, that random Maybe transition run Where you've had to run back half of the field Takes you to 9.2 metres per second Which is your PB What effect is that going to have on your ability to recover? um within the game um or what effect will that have on your ability to then transition again if you win back the ball and have to run the other side of the pitch yeah. um, so the argument of speed reserve is well made by many people in sport in uh, f- for a number of years and and i think the the field sports um community is buying into that a lot more um when you talk about hamstrings you talk about health when you talk about maximi- maximizing performance well we know that the only way to get maximal activation of most of your posterior chain muscles is to sprint yeah so and 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 i when i say sprint i mean really sprint as in above 90 or 95 percent of your maximum intensity not what gps might say which is maybe above 80 percent or whatever it is seven and a half meters a second whatever it is that a unit will tell you is a sprint um so knowing what your, your absolute um, maximum speed is and being able to tick that box or get close to it um, on a weekly basis I think is great for maximising neural drive um, and optimising just um, the, the correct firing patterns that, that you want to, to, to use from, from the hip into the, into the thigh and into the floor.
0: What 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 are some of the the most common mistakes you're seeing with uh, with max velocity mechanics? Um, like I, I obviously I I have I have my own thoughts of what I see, and I think a lot of us see the common trends. You know, usually with non-sprint athletes or. Uh, I think
1: people think they're doing sprint drills by just doing an a skip.
0: Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. But just, just, just on that, what, what are some of the most common mistakes, and then what are some of your most recommended remedies in terms of what are some of the prescriptive ways you like to go about trying to correct certain errors in, in top, uh, in upright running mechanics?
1: Um, I think everyone's now putting sticks above their heads and doing some kind of running.
0: Oh, yeah. he's, he oh he's he's gotten into it now. Well, it I, now. And, and, and I think it's good. I think it's, it's really <laughs> yeah, you, can't, you can't okay. take it back now, Jones. You can't take it Oh, back. I'm not taking it back. I've, I <laughs> like,
1: like my guys run with sticks above their heads and and th- things above their heads and I think it's it's, it's a nice easy way to um, get athletes to get their hip into a neutral posture mm. to to If you you imagine the hip to be a bowl, to not spill water out the bowl out the front by being anterior tilted, um, I think it's a nice, easy way to do it as long as they do that because you can still anterior tilt with your arms above your head. Um, You can still be backside mechanics with your arms above your head. It's a lot easier to be frontside, but if you don't switch your limbs, if you don't attack the ground, if you don't have a stiff ankle, if you don't try to be bouncy, then a stick over your head um, is just a stick over your head um so i think it it definitely take it makes the job a lot easier um to do that and so i think that's a nice remedy if you don't want to talk much and just want the activity to do a lot of the fixing for you same thing for running over hurdles and mini hurdles wickets whatever you want to call it i think they make sense as long as you are trying to be bouncy as long as you're trying to be reactive as long as you're switching your limbs but i've seen a lot of people Run through hurdles, backside mechanics, hips yeah. low, and just gliding and pushing on the ground
0: just of just being on, reactive. Just on the backside just on the backside mechanics thing. Um, I mean, that that was kind of what I was alluding to. Usually, you, you do see a lot more backside mechanics from uh, field-based athletes and from your sort of non-sprinter populations compared to like your sprint sprinter populations or elite sprinters. You know, elite sprinters do seem to have far better frontside mechanics and mm. uh, in comparison then to obviously field-based athletes who've got that more backside mechanics, uh, delayed sort of heel recovery, uh, more tight deflection, stuff like that, but just one thing, what uh, kind of a question I want to ask Stu is that, and, and I know Stu will probably listen to this some stage and he'll go mad now, so I'm not saying this Stu, <laughs> because you know, Stu talks about pushers versus pullers, and, and I know Stu, Stu doesn't Think that there's only two categories. The sprinter see just has those very generic categories. But mm. my my question is like, when you do get someone who is more of a quote unquote pusher or has that more sort of mailbox, as Dan says, like they are they are the ones who spend longer on the ground and are usually more backside dominant. So like, what why would you want to force them into you know being more frontside dominant if their strength is to be more backside? True. Hey, I'm just just wondering what your thought is. I'm not saying that you do that,
1: but it's just... No, no, I think it's true. I think um, if you talk pushes and pullers, and if we just actually uh, look at the ground contact, um, and let's just say you're on the ground for a tenth of a second, let's just say.
0: Um,
1: And the, the question is, what part of um, where where is your maximum rate of force development is it done in the first half or is it done in the second half of the ground contact and that essentially to me is your pushes versus pullers
0: okay is
1: that your pullers create far more pre tension, are far more elastic so the majority of the force they need for that ground contact to project themselves forwards is produced in the air so that by the time they hit the ground they only have to spend a little time on the ground because they've already developed most of the force they need. Whereas your pushers are, um, will predominantly need a longer time to develop their force. So it'll be more towards the back end of that ground contact. Um, but regardless, even a pusher or a puller can still maximise their performance by creating pre-tension, in their swing leg by creating loads of force in the swing leg retraction by being efficient in switching their limbs prior to hitting the ground. The difference is one will do it so well that they can get off the ground sooner. Won't have to have as much as a backside push on the ground and the other will need a bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. But once they finish pushing, they still have to effectively, um, Pick their foot off the ground and recover that limb. They still be, uh, uh, they're still um, uh, they are still more effective with a neutral pelvis in a position where they can lengthen their mm-hmm. their hip flexors effectively, so that they can again pick up their leg quickly. That's they're point. still more beneficial. Um, so so basically, front side mechanics for a pusher versus a puller may be a, fra- a fraction of a second and may require an extra 10 degrees of hip extension,
0: yeah. but yeah. it's still
1: front side mechanics.
0: D- that's a great point. So and I just want to yeah, that's really good in terms of, you know, they're still going to benefit from keeping that pelvis in neutral position. So that's a really pelvis good
1: way <laughs> to position As soon as they finish, as soon as they toe off the ground, that, the uh, hip and knee flexion happens simultaneous i think backside mechanics is more when at the end of toe off that hip flexion is um delayed but knee flexion happens straight away
0: yeah, yeah. so
1: you end up showing your spikes to jesus that's a michael john that's a michael <laughs> phrase yeah you end up showing your spikes to jesus you end up when you've got full pressure on your next stride, you end up with the, with your knee still behind your stance limb. You know, Franz talks a lot about knees together. I I, I think it's not even knees together. I think your knee has to already be coming through. Um, uh, pushers um, sometimes get stuck in pushing, so uh, you you benefit. You can make a, a pusher faster by making them realise that as soon as they finish pushing, they have to switch their limbs effectively.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Whereas
1: pushers that. get stuck in pushing. So when you watch a pusher do hurdle jumps or repeated repeated jumps, or even if it's on, on one spot, in the air, they're still extending. They're still pushing. They've, they're off the ground. More pushing isn't helping them. They're yeah. still pushing. So what they're doing is instead of uh, – and maybe a puller – As soon as they finish pushing against the ground or as soon as they leave the ground, they are now retracting their limbs and they're already starting to work against the ground before they touch the ground. Jump before you land. That's my analogy. Jump before you land. You don't wait to hit the ground and then decide to take slack out your system. Jump before you land. A pusher can often get stuck in pushing or not even just a pusher. An athlete who is um, their training history and their their train maybe their gift in or yeah training history and effect of their current program is on concentric means on creating force they get stuck in that mindset in that mentality when whereas i think the gym you gym to learn how to jump you gym to learn how to create high levels of motor um motor unit recruitment or the free free um, synchronization rate code and motor, re- motor unit recruitment. I think Jim teaches you how to create, um, uh, how to contract as many motor units as quick as possible in the right timing. And Jim helps you build bigger motor units and it, t- it turns your nervous system and tells you it's okay to tolerate higher contraction of these motor units and tolerate higher forces that's what the gym's for
0: but yeah, sometimes yeah.
1: we get stuck in a gym and just keep lifting more and more and we get stuck in this contraction um uh concentric mindset whereas yeah, it's,
0: it's uh it's funny uh, yeah exactly we do we are very concentric boys in gym but it's funny you mention that because it's it's something i've been sort of discussing off a lot with fellow colleagues and peers in the field you know like I've always been fascinated with the concept of neural inhibition and and, you know that really it's all coming back to the brain and its perception of threat and what we're really trying to do is dampen down the brain the brain's perception that this is a threat and it's okay to allow the body to express more force you're not going to actually cause damage to the actual structure or the system Um, and we're just using all of those means to, to, to let the brain know that listen you can you can tell the central nervous system to dampen down the inhibition from these receptors, particularly the spindles and the, the GTOs, the Golgothan organs. But uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by neural inhibition, you know, so uh, it's, a, it's, that's a, it's another a, benefit for
1: field sports athletes for doing maximal velocity training. Absolutely,
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I know we're, we're, we're kind of coming up here on time. Um, in terms of like your speed endurance models, what what are you looking at there? How do you go about that? I know as all just like, there wasn't a lot of classical, like, you know, there was a few, like, 120s, 150s, but they like to do a lot of the segmented runs, I think more so for the quality of it. How do you go about tackling sort of speed endurance? And off that too, if you get a sprinter who's a little more, you know, they're like the way I would word it, you know, they're a little more the acceleration dominant sort of uh, athlete versus the more sort of enduring 100-meter sprinter, do you like to feed the strength or do you like to go after the weakness or is it sort of a concurrent approach where – Listen, if they're better at sort of the enduring aspect where they finish stronger but don't start great, I'll, I'll feed the strength and work on the weakness and vice versa. If they're great at getting out but they're not great at enduring, we'll feed the weakness but we'll definitely keep the strength to strength too. Um,
1: I think Stu put it best in in terms of you work your weaknesses in the in the winter and your strengths in the summer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think um, you can also take that maybe in a different guise and say, I think if you are an acceleration monster and you're a concentric monster, maybe you've got short limbs and or short leg-to-body ratio, where endurance and um, being rhythmical is your limiting factor, um, I'm going to give you opportunities to work on technical endurance and on your rhythm, but within a way that you can walk away and feel like you've been 85% successful. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to make you do the work that makes you feel like half of the session is just hell and you're not really making progression because after all, I don't know if all our sets and reps and our progressions are what make athletes faster. I think being successful and, and perceiving yourself as doing well is what makes you faster, what makes you better. I think that's, again, that threat thing and overcoming adversity as in, sorry, oh, not necessarily adversity, overcoming and being a champion of your training and progression is what gives you self-belief. Um, so one way of developing endurance and technical um, in, endurance and, and composure for one athlete is going to be a very different way for another.
0: Um, Jonas, maybe, maybe just wrapping up there, because like, I'm a programming nerd and uh, I just really want to hear you talk about this. Can you maybe just talk us through like, how you organize your training from the – Micro to meso to macro sort of setup. Well, I don't know whether you even use those terms, but you know maybe take us through like how you look at it from a weekly standpoint to maybe more of a uh, a macro nearly standpoint. And I don't know if you break that year up into sort of more sort of meso sort of like month to month blocks or however however that looks. So maybe take us from a, a weekly cycle and and even expand that out to how you kind of break up your year and how how would that look?
1: Ooh, track and field. Um. It looks different depending on the different scenarios I've been in. Well, basically, I want to work technical. I want to work technical as much as possible, as often as possible. Um, But um, in order to do that, you have to be tolerant to it. So I'm going to be progressive. So maybe I'll talk about my program now. So currently, we do a technical session tail end of the week, Monday, Friday, with uh, more work capacity session on a Wednesday um, every other week that work capacity session will turn into a, a, a shorter more technical session as well when I talk about technical it means we're doing acceleration and upright running um, I'm it, it could vary each week if Monday is a pure acceleration session inside in spikes combining it combining resistive sprints with, with blocks or just, it just runs to 30 meters or we could start inside, set that lesson plan, do maybe a fifth of the normal volume, and then go outside and do technical seven or even 85 meters. Um, it's got a similar theme of Excel transition upright running, rhythmical, um, but they're recovery. Uh, and it's more about capacity capacity to run your technical model um same thing could happen today but friday rarely will i go outside friday will be what you would call traditional speed work um so that's that's that kind of format uh in between those sessions will be upper body general strength tempo running extensive easy stuff um that thing could switch round. uh so Okay, microcycles. I might do that for two weeks, and then the third week, um, that Monday session definitely won't happen. Um, it will be, it will stay light and easy. Um, we might stay outside. We'll stay out of spikes, um, and that's kind of my cycle: two weeks on, one week down. Um, I run a three-week cycle within a six-week cycle, so we go two weeks up, one week down; two weeks up, one week down. Um, within that six weeks all the themes of each session will be very similar with any alterations but it will be six week cycle week seven is a down week um or rest week so a rest week is just when a lot of things are shut off we're still being a gym there won't be any far running i'm just allowing their nervous system to to recover to recuperate before we go again um tends to do two cycles so 12 weeks again and generally that takes us to christmas which is like next week um so then, my my again, my next week seven will be um will be a down will be a down week, a rest week, and then I might have one or two weeks of just literally intensity where I'm just going to run fast and shut them off, and run fast and shut them off. Um, and that that marks a break in the program, um, and then we go again. We'll do another twelve to sixteen, twelve to fourteen weeks or a similar thing. You can normally do three of those in a year. Then it takes you to the outdoor season. And then you're just doing mini cycles of that.
0: So, Jonathan, just wrapping up here. Um, let me just ask you some, just as well as our quick fire round questions. But again, your answers don't have to be quick fire. But in, in terms of your biggest uh, lessons you've learned so far in your career, what, what would you say are your top three?
1: Top three lessons I've learned. Um, once you've educated your athlete, learn to learn from your athlete because all our programs are just guesses. They're just guesses. Educated guesses based on research and and review and blah, blah, blah. But they're just guesses. Norboard and false plates and and first beat and HRV and all these things are windows to the athlete's souls. But there is no more, um, I want to say, accurate barometer than the athlete's feedback. Um, So I think maybe the first thing is, once you've educated your athlete, learn to learn from your athlete because then your program will progress a lot quicker. And that's the first thing. The second thing is um, learn to love sports science and research um, because even though it's done in a microcosm and it's done in a lab base maybe and it's been done in a way that maybe not be so contextual to your environment, um, it gives you it gives you a window to um, understanding things that are, at a simple level um, in a controlled setting so that's the second thing learn to love sports science and research um, and develop a bullshit filter so that when you love sports science and research and you love learning from other people you can start to figure out what applies to you in your environment um, how to how to mould it how to bend it and what to throw out the window
0: Any recommendations on how to build that filter?
1: Um... Just
0: get. Uh, I. I know one. I often recommend is just get better at know, knowing your science. I think the better you
1: know. Yeah, yeah it probably goes back and forth, right? Yeah. Like, the more you learn, the uh, like the easy answers. Experience. Like right? the more you learn, the more you, um, you know, don't don't um get stuck in a, um, a fad. Don't get stuck in a school of thought. Don't get stuck in a paradigm. Um, have an open mind uh, reflective practice. How do you develop that b- bullshit for reflective practice? That's really what it is. Learn to wear to wear different different hats, wear different lenses, see the world through different perspectives, because um, then it allows you to then have a, a a better understanding of what you're seeing.
0: In terms of your top resources, um, and this can be anything that this can be you know book, uh, podcast, online resource, a person or individual. Um, what would be your your top resource? Any anyone listening? In?
1: Um, colleagues and the network. I think um, I I like to talk shop, and um, I'm always intrigued. So I try to talk to people that are smarter than me on a regular basis, uh, and they they uh, again help with the bullshit filter. They help with the sports science, and they help with the um, just creating clarity. So I think the best ne- and and they've done all the reading for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So,
1: right. you know, so, you're
0: uh, la- last reading, um, your top advice. So then this can be anything like, so life advice, coaching advice. What would your top advice be to a lot of listeners?
1: Um, make this your, your vocation, not your job. Um, cause then you'll love it and you'll invest into it as much as possible. Um, and then, have a life and learn to switch off and find something else so that it you become refreshed and you can come back to it. Um, And uh, yeah, have fun. If this stops being fun, move on.
0: Yeah. I remember, I remember like that was one of the first things I heard Dan say in a podcast someone was asking him like what's an essential ingredient for elite performance and he said fun and I was like that was not the answer I was actually expecting and it was just like it was so profound. He's like people think even in high performance setups that athletes aren't meant to have fun. It's just all work where he's like if they're not if it's not fun, they won't it, it won't be a vocation anymore and they won't enjoy the process. So yeah
1: if yeah, you can't go the process then you can't deal with adversity. You can't deal with failure. Like you're meant to be for fail uh, I think someone said failing forwards. Like you're meant to be making mistakes on a regular basis, but embracing those mistakes and learning from them. But if you're not having fun, those mistakes become stresses, they, they become um, things that hold you back. Um, yeah, so you've got to have fun in this game, sure.
0: Um, so we had, we had mistakes, advice, resources. So, the last but not least, and you're probably going to have to have a little think about this one. So Jonas, I'm over. I'm over in London, and I'm, I'm over there. And I said, Jonas, listen, I wanna wanna go for dinner with you, and I'm gonna bring my magical powers with me. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, I can bring people back from the dead. And you're like, okay, you're me out. But anyway, uh, but I say to you, listen, I, you can bring five people to dinner, dead or alive. Who are you gonna invite to this dinner, and why? Well,
1: that's it, Nora. Um.
0: Well, bloody Nora. Okay, that's one.
1: I don't even know who she is. Um, <laughs> Who am I gonna invite? Oh gosh.
0: Dead or alive? Is there a, who would you invite there?
1: What? What a question. Um, a weird one. My grandma on my my dad's mum. That's, that's not weird at all. Um, because I didn't really get to know her before she was going mad. Um, cool. cool. And cool. um. And I know some of my cousins did, and they, you know, one of my cousins is a musician, and she sings about her all the time. And and and, and she's clearly got a strong relationship and strong memories of her, but I don't. I just remember the old senile granny. Um, so that would be one. Uh, who would be at the table? Dan, so that he can he can uh, tell old stories. I think Tom Tellers, because Dan always talks about Tom, and I've never really spoken with Tom, so it would be good to hear his perspective um who else i don't know um gosh this is a hard one because i'm not really a historian i don't really know enough maybe someone crazy like someone who knows too much stuff and everyone quotes now like aristotle um and then maybe someone who's got guru powers like gandhi and then um someone who's a bit rock and roll like bob marley play not rock and roll but you know someone who's a bit out there um and just yeah those guys all on the table talking life philosophy lessons women alcohol <laughs> everything music you know the meaning of all those things and and what they've made sense of them maybe that's it
0: so I one last real quick one what book or books are you currently reading right now
1: Currently reading, so I don't read a lot of books. I read I read articles, but I can't read a lot without getting bored. But I listen to audio books. So what am I listening? I'm just open my my phone now. I have in front of me peak performance, the Steve Magnus book. I think um I think we just I just finished that. Fact, um, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Yeah, um, you
0: can say that.
1: By, yeah, by Mark fuck, Manson.
0: Fuck yeah.
1: Fuck yeah. Okay, fair enough. I've been holding back the the F's and Blinds. Um, it's, an ir- f-
0: it's an Irish podcast, you're think
1: Fair enough. Um, the Mixer, it's, a, it's a, by Michael Cox. It's about the history of Premier League football. Oh,
0: nice. I'm
1: um, just kind of going through this list in front of me. Made to Stick, it's about ideas. Oh, I am,
0: yeah, I am
1: a, reading, or well, my audio, my Siri is reading to me. Um, let me open Kindle. Is reading to me... Um, this book that everyone loves by another Irishman who's in the NFL.
0: Oh, Fergus Conley, Game Changer.
1: Yeah, so I'm currently uh, I have taken a break from it. But, is that, is, that um, a, is that an audio? It isn't. So my Siri I, I Siri can read to me. So, ah, very so Siri good. reads to me to me that. I haven't read How to Support a Champion, but that's in there as well. Steve Ingham. Um, I finished Liquid by Damian Hughes. I love that. Um uh, pressure Principle by Dave Ulred. I like that ma- mainly because um, he was kicking coach for some of the rugby boys I've worked with. So they they kind of said, "Look, he's he's more psychologist than a kicking coach." So I really like that. So kind of um, mostly like performance, uh, leadership, mindset type books are, are kind of on 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 the agenda with the odd, um, yeah, with the odd Brilliant. one.
0: Brilliant. Jonas, sure. Like, uh, as, as we kind of said there offline too, we'll get you back for a uh, part two because we definitely want to get into your program because that's definitely where I like to nerd out. So we'll definitely have you back on at some stage either after Christmas or after the New Year. So just for now, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Jonas, thanks so much for your time. But uh, stay stay online and I'll say goodbye to you as I wrap this up. So, guys, absolutely savage podcast with Jonas. Um, and Jonas... Does- yeah, and I was just going to say, that the only reason I'm not attempting your, your surname is because I've listened to other podcasts where people have tried to do it, and I'm like, if I ever have Jonas in the podcast, I'm going to let him say his own name.
1: <laughs> yeah, when I'm at the football club, people call me doo just for the fun of it, but yeah, I'm Jonas Dodu. Really
0: so, well. so absolutely brilliant episode with Jonas Dodu. Um, really appreciate Jonas' time, and for everyone listening, as I always say, at the end of every show, I'll talk to everyone soon. Uh, take care, and uh, stay strong. <laughs>